Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, uh, before we get started with this episode, we have a quick favor we want to ask listeners out there. We have a bunch more great episodes of this Baltimore season of working coming out. Uh, but we're also in the process of preparing a season about Detroit. And if you know of someone or have an idea about a kind of job that is in Detroit that you think we should feature on the show, we would love to hear from you. So if you have any ideas for either a friend you know who you think has an interesting job or just a job that you know exists in Detroit that you would like to hear about, email that idea to working at slate.com and include the word Detroit in your subject line. Okay, on with the episode. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're taking a trip to Baltimore to chat with some of its residents about the various ways they make a living there. We're hoping to learn a little about how Baltimore shapes their work and about how they're shaping Baltimore by working. The Johns Hopkins Hospital is one of the institutions at the heart of Baltimore. In the hopes of getting a better sense of what goes on there, we talked to Harry Mushlin, who's currently a University of Maryland neurosurgery resident doing pediatric residency shifts at Hopkins, while also treating victims of violence at the University of Maryland's Shock Trauma Center. In this episode, Mushlin tells us about his daily life, leading us through the basics of residency, but also discusses the more astonishing experience of seeing and working on a human brain. And, of course, he talks about what it's like to operate in Baltimore itself. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Mushlin talks to us about what it's like to operate in the shadow of the city's most famous neurosurgeon, Dr. Ben Carson. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is Harry Mushlin, and I am a neurosurgery resident. That sounds awesome, but what does it involve exactly? What kind of neurosurgery do you do? Yeah, so uh, resident means you're in training like an apprentice, and so I'm halfway through. Uh, it means I'm uh, under the guise of an attending doctor, and what my job day-to-day -day is taking care of patients and operating, uh -huh. and so that's where I, where I am right now. So what sort of surgeries are, are you doing? What, what kind of neuro work are you involved in? Well, Residency is everything. So the goal is to learn how to do everything. Okay. And, and being a neurosurgeon actually is spine and brain. Okay. So you are a spine surgeon and a, and a brain surgeon as well. And so it's the nervous system. 
uh, you do throughout residency, you take seven years and each stage you learn something a little bit different and builds on itself. Uh-huh. Right now, where I'm at right now is at doing my pediatric rotation. So I'm doing pediatric neurosurgery. Meaning for, Meaning for, kids. for kids. And so the kids have a wide range of problems. You have tumors, you have spine issues, you have problems with fluid on the brain that you have to divert. So there's a wide range of issues in, mm-hmm. in, in pediatric neurosurgery. Um, how did you settle on, on neurosurgery? How did you come to that? Um, in college, I did neuroscience. And so I knew I liked the brain. I then went to medical school. And in medical school, I was like, I knew I liked brain surgery, but I'll keep my options open. And then I sort of just fell in, you know, you try out everything and you kind of go back to where I thought I'd be. And I was doing neurosurgery. So are you at the point in your career now where you actually are there in the room to yeah. perform surgeries? My, my, now my life is day to day coming in, mm-hmm. seeing the patients we operated on, seeing what happened overnight, making a plan, discussing the plan with the boss, coming up and then going to surgery in the, during the day. Yeah. You're the assistant surgeon. There's different parts that you're responsible for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, pediatrics is a little more uh, tiered. So, you know, there's the attending's always there. There's a fellow, then there's me and a resident. But yes, I'm, I'm in the OR uh, every day. Can you give us a specific example of something that pulled you into the OR recently? Yesterday, we had two cases that came overnight, one that was planned that's for just simple CSF diversion. They're called shunts. What is that? What that's is sort CSF? of bread and butter of pediatric neurosurgery. It's a way of your brain makes fluid that we all absorb normally. And then some people in pediatric population for multiple reasons are predisposed to not having proper absorption of fluid. You have to divert it from the brain to somewhere else because if it builds up in the brain, you get sick. Mm -hmm. So these kids have had infections or bleeds or these congenital disorders that don't allow them to drain fluid. So we have to drain the fluid somehow that me and you would normally absorb into your body to another portion of the the body. So you, you have tubing that goes from inside the brain and then it has a little tube this that is a tube that you put in. This is put not, it in. Yeah. yeah, we put in the tube. It's not born with the tube. <laughs> it's it, it, you can actually. It's a little tube goes into the brain where the caves inside the brain hold this fluid, mm-hmm. and then there's a little valve on the skin that goes underneath the scalp, mm-hmm. and then you have a tube that goes all the way down to your abdomen, and you put the tube into the abdomen, into the abdominal cavity, so it sits on like on top of the organs, and that absorbs the fluid. So it kind of sounds kind of crazy if you don't know what it is, but that's what it is. How how do you get a tube like that into a child's body? Uh, uh, you make an incision. You have to drill a hole through some, the skull, and you stick a tube through the skull, mm-hmm. through the covering of the brain, into the brain, into the, those caves that hold the fluid. Uh-huh. And then there are special instruments that allow you to place all those, the, the tubing. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this, it, it sounds like this is not something that would necessarily or, or usually happen on an emergency basis. This no, is it a- does. If, 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 if you need to... People, there are reasons why people are very sensitive to needing that diversion, yeah. and so you have to emergently do it. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, so could, you know, a patient could just come in, and then you, everyone has to scramble and assemble. And, and yeah, exactly. When you come, neurosurgery in particular has a lot of emergencies. So, you know, if we had a trauma a few weeks ago where someone came in that needed a, the bone taken off the head because there's a lot of pressure. Like the whole? No, just a part of the bone. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and so if you're, if you're doing that, the OR always has staff ready to go to, uh-huh. to if you need an emergent room. Okay, so let's take a step back. What's the actual shape of your day like when you're, as you are right now, in this pediatric rotation? Sure. Uh, I wake up at between 4.30 and 5. A.M.? A.M. Okay. 
to me, that sounds normal. Maybe other people think it's that's, that does not sound normal to me, but I applaud <laughs> your, your ability. To yeah. Do so I wake up and half the days I have to, I quickly shower, make some lunch, walk the dog, and then I come in and then we, you, you go. When, by what, what time are you, are you in? Between, uh, between 5.30 and 6. And are you, you're in scrubs now. Are you in scrubs when you come I in? I come in scrubs, yeah. So I come in in scrubs. Yeah, I wear this. Um, you come in and you get signed out from the person who is covering the hospital that night. Uh-huh. So anything that acutely happened, they update you. So your initial work is looking at a paper list. It lists everyone's names. Mm-hmm. And then you have to look at the computer because the computer has an, uh, the medical records now. Mm-hmm. And then you sort through that. And then once you have your list sort of updated, imagine you were updating a list every day relative to the things that had happened, you then walk around and see every single patient. So you're going on rounds through the hospital. You're going on rounds through the hospital. This is before your big meeting with the attendings has even happened. So you're getting all your information, coming up with all your plans, mm-hmm. right? And that's how you be, learn how to be a good clinician. You're like, I saw this, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And then you were going to tell someone what you think we're supposed to be doing. And then they confirm or deny that that's the right plan and come up with a plan to do for the day. Uh-huh. To, just for each of the patients? Each that patient. Yep, each patient. All right. So, so you've looked at this list, you've uh-huh. updated it, uh-huh. you've made your rounds, and then, then you have this big meeting with... Then there's another meeting. You have a daily meeting. All the pediatric neurosurgeons sit around the table. You go through every single patient. You pull up the imaging, if there's any relative imaging mm-hmm. when you're a surgeon. Well, imaging of their brains? Brains, yes. Yeah, so MRI imaging? Yeah, MRI, CAT scans, and x-rays are what we use, yeah. And uh, on kids, you use MRIs a lot because CAT scans have a lot of radiation. Mm-hmm. So you're putting all of these scans up on screens around the room or something? Can you paint us a picture of... of yeah, I mean, nothing's what? done with those traditional, like, uh, slides you put up anymore. Everything's computer. That's a shame because that's a pretty cool-looking thing. For... Yeah, it sounds... It looks cool, but you have no idea. When you get these... The actual films, it's like 50 of them, and you have to put them up individually. All right, so you're looking at all of these computerized images of the brain... Imagings of, of, of brains and, and spinal cords, I assume, and such as well? Or? Yes, Let's say a new patient came in. You're like, is something wrong? Mm-hmm. And you get the picture to help you figure out what was wrong. Is there a brain tumor? Let's look at the brain tumor. Mm-hmm. There's a problem with that fluid issue I was talking about. Have, is their brain changed in size or caliber? Okay. Was there a bleed or a fracture or something like that that we have to look at? Has it changed over time? Because we wanted to monitor it over a period of days or in hours. And mm-hmm. So we're constantly following up on stuff like that. Yeah. So what comes out of that meeting? Uh, are people getting assignments? Are yeah. you figuring out next steps? Yeah, the, the, that meeting, this is after, now we have a plan for every single person that's the day's goal. Okay. And that's been sanctioned by the attending and off you go. So what time in the day are we at this This point? is 7.30. So you've been here for two hours at this point? Yeah. Right. 7, 7.45 is their meeting. Yeah. So what happens after that? Now then you go to the OR. How much of your day do you actually spend in the OR? It's, it's, var- it's varied. Yeah. I mean, uh, yesterday we had three cases and we were done at like, uh, you know, being in the OR probably done around 3.30 or something like this. So you've been there for hours, but the cases roll over. The case finished, you wait, you have a 45 minutes until the next patient gets in the room. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it varies. Some days are long. Some days you have a case that's six, seven hours. Some days you have a case that's only an hour mm-hmm. and you maybe you have a combination of those. You work with kids right now. Some of them probably very young. Do you, yeah. do you interact with them at all or are, they, or are you totally on the, uh, yeah, the post-anesthesiology I, I, encounter? I w- yeah, I'd say there is a conscious effort to make sure that before surgery, the parents see the attending, not the resident. 
And so they know that we're part of the team because you're at, you know, you're at John Hopkins, you're at a university. A university doesn't function without residents. But we are not the star of the show before surgery now. Um, but the interaction with the kids is after surgery. We check up on them, say hello. Yeah, then we're more. Then they know who we are. But not that, not right before. Are you able to build relationships with patients of over course. the time? Yeah, I mean, some are more receptive than others. Even I've realized, even the babies you have a relationship with that can't communicate with you, but you've been seeing them every day mm-hmm. and. You know, that's the, you feel a connection to taking care of them. I mean, that would be, that's part of the, you know, part of the process of being a physician is having that that connection. Yeah, yeah. And what's it like to have this kind of personal interaction with someone who's like neural tissue you've potentially literally seen exposed? You know? <laughs> it doesn't seem so taboo to me, but um, you don't, you, you don't, you get desensitized. Uh-huh. There's, there's no other way around it because... I mean, I would think the other way to rephrase that would be um, not their tissue, but who are so sick. Yeah. So you're, you've, you've either tried to rele- – you've done your best surgically to help someone who ends up actually just still being very um, neurologically devastated. Yeah. And so you see them every day like a, a young boy, a young girl who can't talk, can't move half their body, is ventilator dependent. You, 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 you get desensitized. And, and not that you aren't aware of the tragedy of it, but you are able to objectively deal with how to help them mm-hmm. versus being every day. It's every day is not like a new, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened to this person. You know, you're the physician. You, you, you learn how to deal with it. What about, I mean, do you interact at all with parents or is that just no, something we, the attending? No, we, we interact with the parents. And, and what's that like? I mean, when, when you have someone who just so desperately needs you to, wants you to, to, to help their, their child, but also maybe who just doesn't even really fully grasp yeah. what's happening, I assume. Well, the last part of your question is good because that's the key for the sick, for sick people. It's how to, some people, everyone reacts differently to grief. So, and, and, and in my head, you know, there's some people who, whose reactions to know everything, right? They, they say, I want to know all these things. I'm going to be very detail-oriented in my patient, my kid's care. And, and, and try to be rational. And then sometimes it hasn't hit in, even if it's been there for a long time. I think some parents, I, I can't speak. That's never happened to me. How do I know I'd react? So everyone's different, and your job is to kind of gauge how to present information relative to what the parent is able to, uh, 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 I think, obtain yeah. or, or comprehend and expecting. It's like, so it can be kind of a complex uh, process. Yeah, The brain is such a complex and subtle system and, yeah. and so much can go wrong with it. Yeah. Is it ever difficult to really help people understand the, the vagaries of, of what's wrong with, with their children? Yeah, that, that, yeah, I think that's hard to capture because you break a bone, it heals. Right, we all understand what yeah, it's like to break a bone. The other issue I think is with children, at least I've come to talking to like the attendings and getting their wisdom as well you know adults are a little easier to predict who might not do well or what's going to happen that the children really act differently so sometimes it's we kind of it's a little harder to say exactly what's going to happen and that mystery mm-hmm. you know changes the way you talk to uh, families but yeah it's hard for some people to fully I mean that would be philosophical to get it again to help people understand what makes them them I have my own thoughts. I think you are your brain, and you damage that tissue. There's not some secret you hiding out 
you know, in the soul somewhere waiting to come out. I mean, that's just the way, unfortunately, you've been injured. And that concept of whatever created you is now altered forever. And that's hard to capture for some people. In that light, we're thinking about the brain as the sole seat of the self. Mm-hmm. D- does that for you ever increase your sense of the burden or the importance of your work? I mean, you're, you literally have someone's selfhood in your hands you when you're know, operating on you, them. You, 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 you remember, uh, that's part of this seriousness, uh, and not just the brain, if you're operating on the spine, anything that can change who you are, mm-hmm. functionality, part of our training, the way you become a, a, a surgeon is to appreciate, especially in neurosurgery, a small mistake can be a huge mistake. And so a small thing can be forever gone. And yeah, you, you, you are conscious of that. Like, you know, you aren't going to take that vein and can cause a stroke. You aren't going to touch that and cause bleeding there because that could give them a, a different type of stroke. You know, that there's things that you're thinking about that you, you should never do. Yeah. <laughs> you're listening to neurosurgeon Harry Mushlin. After this brief break, Mushlin talks about working at Shock Trauma Medical Center and shares some thoughts about what it's like to see a brain up close. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. How late are you here? What After all that time in the OR, after, after going around checking in, what else happens? Yeah, the day the day usually ends by six o'clock. And do you head home at that I, point? I go home. So your days are like twelve, thirteen hour days. Yeah, that's fair. Some days are a little more. Some days are a little less. But yeah, that's the day. One, you hear sometimes about residents working these like 24, 25 hour sure. more shifts. Is that just not something that happens at this hospital, or is that not a neurosurgery thing? No, it's it's a neurosurgery thing. Um, it all has to do. It's complex because it has to do with how calls taken. And on the weekend, I occasionally do shifts that are twenty four hours. So that's the weekend coverage. I do that at Shock Trauma. I'll cover a twenty four hour shift, or you know that's how that happens. But the way they've sort of changed all that stuff has has to do with how they've allocate patient residents to cover the hospital. So you don't do that as often anymore. The, and I'm, I'm sort of a mid-level now. Junior guys are doing longer, that kind of overnight stuff that I only have to do occasionally now. How does your day differ when you're, when you're here for that huge 24-hour well, period I mean, or longer? How is it different? Well, you, you eat a lot of cafeteria food and uh, <laughs> you find ways to nap. And when you're working a long shift, it's rest when you can, do some extra work when you can, and, and, and you kind of pace yourself out. Your concept of time ch- changes a little bit. We're in a call room yeah. in the hospital now, which has a, a bed in it. It's sure. like a little super spare yeah. hotel room almost. Is this where is this the kind of space you would yeah. you would nap in? Yeah, you, you have a little room um, with a bathroom and hopefully a computer. It's kind of nice. No computer in this one. This yeah. one has no computer. This is this is the lower end one. Um, but uh, yeah, you, it's like a little office and yeah, with a bed. Yeah. Which is nice. I mean, truth is, sometimes you're very tired and, you know, you have call and you're not getting anything for a few hours. You can rest up and then you go back to 
going to work. So I think people's concept sometimes is that the physician in a 24-hour stretch is like, you know, imagine doing one thing the entire time. And yeah. that's not true. It's just someone has to be there to like in case there's emergency. Sometimes you get work like a dog and you are running around and you didn't sleep. Yeah. But there's always a little sleep here, a little sleep there to get you through, you know. Do you ever get giddy? Yeah, I mean, you you can get like a, you know, if you've been up for that long, you get a certain mania. <laughs> some people get really tired. Some people get grumpy. I mean, I would, I'll admit on uh, on record, I can get a little grumpy. I don't know who doesn't, but you also can get, you know, yeah, your personality changes a little, little bit. Do you do anything to keep yourself entertained? Do you read, play a game, watch a movie when you have downtime? Yeah, downtime, I probably, I watch a lot of TV. You got, you know, I got a, there's a setup where I have these nice two screens and I'll watch you can actually do a little work and watch TV at the same time. Sometimes I'll do some work if it's time before some uh, a test that we have that I study. You can study during that time mm-hmm. um, for you know your boards. Um, but usually I'll, it's that, or I, if it's not board studying, it was um, that's been for my last two years. But it, or it's uh, you know Amazon and Netflix and stuff like that. If you're on one of those overnight shifts and you doze off for mm-hmm. a, for a little bit, is there any? trick to making sure that you will wake up and, and be focused when, when a call comes in when you get paged? Well, there's a trick to being focused, but there is a trick to making sure you... There are times if you don't get paged enough, your body like wakes at yourself up to make sure that it's working because uh-huh. you're so used to maybe getting called yeah. that if it isn't going off, you set your pager. Remember, the pager makes a lot of noise. I never, I can't sleep through a pager. It mm. beep, 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 really loud. So I can't sleep through that. But your body, you just, some, maybe if you're exhausted, you'll sleep through. But I usually, if I go a few hours and no one's called, I probably just wake up and check it to make sure it's still on because the battery didn't die or something like that. How do you maintain focus, though? I mean, presumably you still need to really be yeah. on. You have a job to do. Part of, you know, I think personally, you know, I'm not great at paying attention without being forced. Mm-hmm. So surgery and medicine is forced attention. You, you people ask that, but how do you do that? You, 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 that's the job. I, I don't know other way to say it. That that's required of you, so you get it done. Forced stuff makes you do stuff that maybe you think you couldn't. You said you were doing crash trauma during those times. What's that? Oh, mean? I said shock trauma. Oh, shock trauma. I'm shock sorry. trauma is the big hospital downtown in Baltimore. Oh, oh, it's, oh, it's an actual facility. Yeah, it's called shock trauma. It's a, it's the trauma hospital. It's a pretty it's, badass name. Yeah, it's a cool name. They, I think they thought about that. <laughs> that hospital is just a big trauma hospital. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you're and you're of course trained for for all sorts of stuff. You're not just it's everything. Yeah, right. You when you train neurosurgery, you learn everything. So are you are you looking at uh, like ER stuff uh, when you're in those kind of situations? Well, imagine it's like extreme ER, like okay. the stuff that you might see on TV that go to the ER, uh-huh. dying, terrible trauma, ice pick to head, or some crazy car accident really ends up in a place like a trauma bay, which okay. is really run by trauma surgeons. Okay. So. Um, maybe in the community stuff ends up in the ER in a big city it ends up in the trauma hospital okay. and so Hopkins has a trauma section Mer- University of Maryland has shock trauma so you got to think about it a little differently so what, what kind of stuff do you see when you're there oh at, at shock trauma you, you, you'll see some crazy stuff a lot you know during the summer it's a lot of gunshot wounds especially last year when it was particularly violent so last year was an exuber- a lot of gunshot wounds to the head. You're getting acts like MVC accidents. Old people who fall get easily mm-hmm. injured in the head. Uh, you're getting spine injuries sometimes from young kids doing dumb things like jumping mm-hmm. off into shallow pools. The the, way, the, the range is pretty wide. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean sometimes it's quiet and sometimes it's bustling. But you'll get a wide range of pretty 
you know, significant injuries mixed in with the ones that are benign. Yeah. And the homicide rate, as I understand it, is pretty high. In yeah, it was pretty high last year. You sensed it. Like, I remember um, last summer, there was the Freddie Gray, all that Freddie Gray stuff, and the aftermath lasted a while. And sort of particularly in the summer is already a violent time because people are out mm-hmm. and about and drinking or doing whatever they're doing. You know, winter people are hold up a little more. Mm-hmm. What's it like to experience that as a medical professional? Um, I mean, it's one thing to read about it in the papers, another thing to, to see, see it? it in the streets. But 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 to, to experience the aftermath yeah, of, it's, of it's, violence must be. Yeah, you. you well, for, for neurosurgery in particular, you're. you're you know, treating a lot of these people, and then you're you're treating them, but it's pretty devastating. Sometimes hits to the brain, so you're kind of doing your best, but it's a little sometimes beyond the pale. Sometimes you do good work, and you really do save them, and you know the person has a good outcome. Think mm-hmm. about things a good outcome. Um, you sense the violence. I mean, like I said, you do get desensitized to like seeing brain coming out of someone's head, which you know most people would probably might vomit at. Um, but for me, it, that's like part of the intimacy of the work. It's not, it's the macabre part, right? You're like kind of involved in that most raw part of human life sometimes. And sometimes that involves violence. And mm-hmm. so you get to see that part of human nature that maybe people don't see every day. Was there ever a time in your training before you were desensitized that, that it was hard to see that stuff? No, I, 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 mean, I don't know. How can I even know? I never saw a, a gunshot to the head. <laughs> Before I was a resident, you know. Yeah. What was your reaction the first time that you saw brain? brain? Yeah. yeah. It's a good. It's an excitement because you feel as though you're somewhere you're not supposed to be, and the process of even getting to the brain or the spine is hard. Mm-hmm. You, it's covered by bone. Nature wants that to be the most protected part of your body, mm-hmm. skin, muscle, bone, thick bone, and then there's another covering that covers your central nervous system. And when you open that, then there's the actual nervous system. Mm-hmm. So that, when you get there, it's, it's excitement because you're somewhere very special, right? It's the hub of who we are and what makes you you and makes you move and it's delicate. And, and when you look at it, it is pretty beautiful. But I remember that first time they took off the bone on the head and, the, and there, and they opened the covering of the brain and there was the cortex with all the little vessels and the grooves. And it was very, it's very pristine. It's very clean, like the cleanest thing you can, you know, it's, it shines. Mm. And so that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I remember that. I, I've read, I don't know if this is bullshit, but that, that the, the particulars of a given brain, the way that, that it, it, it folds and, and, and so on, uh, are like a fingerprint. That, that each sure. one is unique. Is that, is that no, resonate with your experience? Or is that yes and no. I mean, everyone's is shaped differently, but like imagine, uh, but the things are supposed to be where they're supposed to be. The part that is sensory is sensory. The part that's for vision is vision. The part that controls motor is motor. The part that does hormones is hormones. So it's kind of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't, yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Sure, it looks a little different, but that doesn't mean much to me. We've got a quick message here for you. Uh, But after this brief break, neurosurgeon Harry Mushlin leads us through the details of performing a surgery. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. 
but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramps business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramps software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Can you tell us a little bit about like the actual practical experience of doing one of these surgeries though? Like y- y- the skull, as you you said earlier, the skull is incredibly thick yeah. bone, but you have to what do, you, what do you do? Do you yeah, have to saw that open? Yeah, it's pretty barbaric. I mean, you're scalp, quote unquote, scalping a human, right? You're, you're cutting the skin. Uh-huh. You're protect. You're keeping it from bleeding too much. Peeling the, it away. But you can bleed out. Right? The, the scalp is unbelievably vascular, so you mm-hmm. can bleed. Actually, you know, people can die if you cut enough of the scalp, and you can bleed out and die. You can lose all your blood. Uh-huh. And so you're opening the skull. You're opening the skin. To how help. do you? Well, how do you prevent that from happening? I mean, what, uh, what, what kind put, of care do you take? There's special. Uh, you're buzzing it. You're you're burning stuff. Okay, mm-hmm. you're burning little vessels. So you're that are cauterizing bleeding. it as cauterizing. you Cauterizing. You see, you're no better than me. Cauterizing <laughs> it, and you're putting special clamps on the skin that squeeze down and prevent flow from coming out. Uh-huh. And those are called rainy clips, and those go onto the, the scalp. And then you're using instruments that help peel away the muscle and the special covering of the bone, and that reveals the bone. Mm-hmm. And then once your bone is revealed with planning, I won't get into all that, but you're planning where your incision is going to be, and you have an idea of how much bone you want to take how off. How long is this whole process usually taking? That's quick. I mean, once you've set up the room and you know where you're going to go and you have the patient positioned, getting down to skull is, I don't know, a few minutes or, <laughs> you know, five minutes. It's not long. You could be even, it's just, it's just shocking it's, it's to very think quick. No, yeah. no, getting to bone is, should be quick. You know, I mean... It, it can be very quick. And so then you're using power tools, using special drills to go through the bone and using like little jigsaw saws to connect your dots. Imagine connecting your dots on a shape that you've created on the skull is what you remove. Mm-hmm. So you remove like a section of the skull. You're, you're not just like taking the whole top of their oh skull. Oh God, I hope. No, we don't take the whole, the whole thing isn't... off. Like you get fired. Yeah, no, you're, <laughs> you're taking off a, a segment, a little corridor that allows you to access the part that you want. So, all right, so you've revealed... You've taken the skull off. Mm-hmm. Now, the next part is to open the covering of the brain, and that's called dura. It's a little leathery covering. Mm-hmm. And so, like a cuticle for the brain? A cuticle, more like a skin for the brain. Okay. And so there's a covering of the brain, and you have to open that up very gently. And that now you're being a little more precious. Skin and bone, you can move a little quicker. Now you're being careful. You're opening the covering of the brain, and then, you're star- then you'd be looking at the brain once you open that up. Mm-hmm. But everything's in stages to keep things organized. So there's ways that we package everything and pull stuff out of the way. So the skin is held back with special instruments so it's out of your way. Then you're tenting up the dura in a way to keep you out of the way or keeping it moisturized and out of the way. And now you're... You know, it's all about making sure that your view is kept nice and things are not, no bleeding. My program director would say no bleeding, okay? Different people have different allergies to blood, but your goal should be to have a complete allergy to blood, I think, you know? Yeah. 
just absolutely. It should, before you start going to Brandon, there should be no blood going into your field. <laughs> right. You take your time, figure out what's bleeding, fix it, right? Every, the little covering of the brain's got little vessels. You buzz, you cauterize, you know, the goal is then you, then, then you can start what you're going to do. Are you taking any other precautions while all this is going on to make sure that nothing gets on the brain or whatever? Well, I mean, yeah, I don't I mean, even know how to ask this question. I think you could ask, what else have you done? The positioning of your head's important and the anesthesia is important. Mm-hmm. Medications you can give pre-op are important to reduce, the, make the brain more slack. You can give special medication for that depending on what you're trying to, sorry, your objective. Mm-hmm. Um, no, there's no other special precautions other than a sterile OR. <laughs> sure. Uh, and then, you know, I assume that the procedure is going to be different each time. Yeah. Uh, but w- what are some of the things that you could do once you've opened up the skull? Oh, very varied. I'll tell you that the big things we do, right? You remove blood clots. Okay. You clip aneurysms, right? Those are abnormal outpouchings of the vessels inside your head. Uh-huh. You remove tumors. How do you remove an aneurysm? You don't. Oh, sorry. You You, you obliterate it. So you can go in and... Imagine you had um, a tunnel, and out of that tunnel was a blip because the wall of the tunnel was affected. And if water is going through that tunnel, it can go into that blip in the tunnel wall. And imagine it's a little balloon, and eventually sometimes that can rupture or not rupture. But if you want to get rid of it, imagine you just put a a clip, a very powerful clip around the base of that Mm -hmm. and sort of reconstruct the tube so nothing's going into that blip. Mm -hmm. And so that's how you do it. And that gets rid of, quote-unquote, the aneurysm. But you're never re- it's not a resection like a brain tumor. It's more of an obliteration. You've got tumors as well. Yep. That, that you're taking off, taking out? That you're taking out as mm-hmm. much as you can. Sometimes tumors you only can debulk and they're palliative, right? People are sick, but you're going to do your best. Remove you, some of the tumor. Remove some of the tumor. Which some takes t- away some of the pressure, I guess, yeah, from the yeah, brain. Yeah, exactly. It takes away some of the pressure that could be affecting parts of the brain and making you weak or have trouble talking or mm-hmm. trouble seeing. Because it's putting pressure on one of those areas that's yeah. responsible for, for various kinds of cognition? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And that's why I kind of answered earlier that the answer is bullshit because it's not like it's a mystery where yeah. your, your vision center is. It's not a mystery where your yeah. arm center is. So uh, that, that's, that's the, that's, so yeah, then you're taking, you take tumors out completely or partially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, all right, so you've you've done this. You've you've uh, uh, obliterated the the aneurysm, removed or or, or, or palatated the tumor. Uh, what's next? You closing up the brain now? Yeah, now you, you just kind of work. Imagine going backwards. You know, you're uh-huh. working backwards. Everything. You're putting that 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 what was the layer around the, the dura? Brain? You're putting the dura back. Yeah, you're sewing the dura back. You, you literally sew, sew it, it back to get yeah with just stitches that are going to biodegrade. Or something? Exactly. Very okay. special small sutures that you sew back it and patch. Uh-huh. There's special things that we do when it that dura is um, the integrity is, you know, f- been altered and you have like a hole in it or something mm-hmm. or there's not enough of it to cover the brain. We have special material that we use to cover the brain synthetic synthetic some of it's actually cadaveric what does that mean dead people's skin i believe okay (laughs) (laughs) sorry i got queasy for a second uh all right uh what about putting the skull section that you removed back sure that part's easy you there's little titanium plates and screws just so like an orthopod puts like uh, metal into your leg or screws or pins We, we use little titanium plates that span the bone that we took off to the native bone, and then you use little screws to screw it back together. And at some point, are you going to come and take that no, off? That's there forever. forever. That stays forever. So you don't want to have too many brain surgeries. Well, I mean, you may, yeah, for many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And then you sew the scalp back oh, down. And then you and then you suture the scalp back together in layers. Suture, suture. In, in la- what do you mean in layers? There's layers. To, it's not like you just put the skin back on. There's a bottom layer, and then uh-huh. there's, yeah, there's you, you, have, you put the bottom layer, suture that, and then the skin. Yeah. And then you had done the cauterization of some of those blood vessels. Yeah. Is that, and as is you that, what, no, that comes up. You have to as you close, you're making sure you have hemostasis. What does that mean? Uh, control of bleeding. So are you are you opening them back up or yeah. you just let that those those vessels reform? Uh, oh, the these little process? tiny vessels? No, they're just burned. All right, <laughs> you'd be amazed of this is imagine a large, very huge tree. There are major vessels that feed the perfuse your skin mm-hmm. that you avoid, but we're talking these little guy, little oh, okay. little feeders. Yeah. All right, and then uh, then the patient gets uh, sometimes answering for neurosurgery. I'm sure all surgery, but. You know, such a wide range, but if it's a very sick patient, usually they go to like a neuro ICU mm-hmm. and are cared for by the neurosurgery team and an intensivist helps manage the patient. And so you'll check in on them occasionally or all the, no? All the time. Yeah. 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 There's a full squad, uh-huh. you know, like it's, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What are you looking for when you're checking in on a patient after a surgery? Yeah. A, a neurosurgery is most important to your exam. How are they doing? Uh-huh. You know, how are they performing cognitively or? Yep. All of that cognitively. Yeah. We, we're looking for functionality and cognition, yeah. And are you looking at a lot more scans, uh, MRIs and such? Yep. There's post-op scans, depending on what you did. You're looking at your work, yep. Uh-huh. What's the medical community like here in Baltimore? How did you end up in Baltimore? Uh, just like all physicians, I do a match, and a match, a computer program spits you out. And I matched into neurosurgery at University uh-huh. of Maryland. But I wanted to go there. It was one of my top choices, so I was happy to come. Why were you attracted to... to- Baltimore for neurosurgery um, in particular. I liked. I really liked the people in the program, and I mm-hmm. thought it was a good fit. When you're going to be somewhere for seven years, it has to be a good fit. Yeah. And so I felt a certain connection with the people there, the professors there, and the type of program they were running. So it was good for me. What about just like the social elements of of being in residency in a place like this? Is uh, it Grey's Anatomy or is it? Uh, well, I, I I did marry a doctor. Uh, <laughs> I did marry a, a urologist. So uh, I guess it's not as juicy, but sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah, being there is an element of being like a very intense bubble. Yeah. And that bubble is can be your, your a lot of your life, especially early on. And so, yeah, I think that for some people, I mean, I met my wife in the hospital. I came here single and I met her there. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have a you know, some inappropriate love affair like they do on Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> but there was, you know, getting to know each other yeah. through, I paged her through a paging system to meet, to go get lunch the first time, you know, and that's probably something most people don't do. <laughs> I, I don't think most people do that. <laughs> are there, are there friendships, rivalries? Uh, there's competition when you're, you're in neurosurgery or surgery or medicine in general. Sure. There's competition. What, what are you competing over? You know, everyone wants to be good, have good hands, be smart, publish, you know, mm-hmm. be respected. Uh, that's sure. But I think we, I think that can get out of control at some places. Um, there's probably that sense of, you know, every man for themselves a little too much, but where I go, I don't, I don't have that feeling. I think it's a overall, uh, uh, not that kind of, uh, sh- place where you know everyone's just trying to stay on top and be the shark mm-hmm. but surgery is still surgery and you know it is competitive in nature yeah what what will be next for you where will you go uh from you have a full year in this pediatric part of your rotation i have four months total four months total okay and then i'm actually done with pediatrics all right and unless you wanted to be a pediatric neurosurgeon i would then do a fellowship for me i go back to maryland Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do an infolded spine clinical Maryland uh, University of Maryland University Hospital. of Maryland Hospital. So, it, it, which I was, yep, 
which is across the, you know, across downtown. Mm-hmm. And I go back there and I actually have, I finished residency in 2020 uh, mm-hmm. and then I'll do a year of fellowship. So I'll be done in 2021. So okay. I'm still like, I'm only halfway through the tunnel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Where do you want to end up? Would, would you want to stay here in Maryland or, or, or do you see yourself ultimately landing in another city at another hospital? Yeah, if I do an academic job, sometimes you have to go where the job is. Um, I like New England and I like D.C. and, and I do like Baltimore, actually. Yeah. So probably East Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Has has being in Baltimore, do you think, shaped your experience as a doctor particularly? Well, yeah. I mean, every place has a population they're serving. You know, every place you're going to have a different experience. Some people serve more of a VIP clientele. Some people serve more of the people, you know, of the city they live in. We're probably more of that group, which is good, I think. I I think that's a good training to see all different types of walks of life. Do you feel like you've gotten a sense of the city? Yes, And its people? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you, and particularly Maryland, like, if you're from the coast of Maryland, it's very different than being from the Baltimore. Yeah. And that's very, you can sense that. Our Southern Maryland is very, is very different than Northern Maryland, right? Uh-huh. It's a different little uh, culture. Do you think that your job, your experience of it is different being here than it would have been if you'd been in another city, if you'd been in Boston or some, some city like that? Sure. I mean, if I, that question, if I was uh, anywhere, would be different uh, philosophically. But um, Baltimore has like a very like uh, Baltimore proud group. And there's a certain personality that's with Baltimore that you, I did not know existed. You know, everyone's like, oh, I want to be a New Yorker or a Bostonian. But Baltimore is more than like being – people who are like from D.C. or L.A., it's like two of a mishmash. But Baltimore has a true like essence to it. And that has been unique to being here is getting to know what that was. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, that a Baltimorean is a Baltimorean. And there's actually a little accent. I, even, I can't even try to do it because it's true. There's like this little thing, you know, you, you love the Orioles, you love the Ravens, you have a place you go eat crab. Like there's a people who are born and bred here. There's a, you know that. Just like I feel like I thought, you know, if you're from Boston, you kind of know that person's really from Boston. There's a, that thing for Baltimore as well. Do you feel like you know, if I can ask a really cheesy question, sure. the Baltimorean brain? No, I don't know the Baltimore. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Sure, thank you. I hope hope, uh, you learned something. I learned a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address, if you want to tell us what's happening in your brain, is workingatslate.com. We try to read and, and respond to all of those, and it really is great to hear from you. It's helped shape the season that we've been working on and uh and the podcast that we love making for you uh you can also listen to past episodes uh and previous seasons at slate.com slash working working is produced and edited by mickey capper our executive producer is steve lichtai and the chief content officer of the panoply network is andy bowers This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.